Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm Drew. What's shaking, everybody? Hey, hey. So, this week, in recognition of the fact that another Marvel movie is going to be hitting theaters, we've decided to do a little bit of a introductory course for The Eternals. Course? Um, I don't know. I was just reaching for different ways to say things. So, uh, let's yeah, let's let's call it a, a quick refresher course, or uh, I don't know, what would you call it, Drew? Uh, I thought we were just gonna talk about a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, whatever. <laughs> are we suddenly professors who are going to educate the masses with we are the very history? of eternals we are content creators <laughs> we are <laughs> we are comic influencers no uh well we we do pride our, ourselves on uh having pretty vast knowledge of comic books and uh i i do think that we go out of our way to educate the masses and the civilians on comics and comics related things so i i don't know if we're actual professors but I'd like to think that we 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 bring we bear the light of knowledge. I think in our imaginations we have honorary degrees from Harvard about comics, comic book. My degrees, imagination. Man. I have a girlfriend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Between the Gutters. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> uh, credits. Run credits. <laughs> Um, so anyways, yeah, so the, the, the trailer for The Eternals has been out for a while now. It's something that I want to say, based on what I've seen of the trailer, it feels like Marvel slash Disney is treating this as if it's a different kind of movie than, you know, the, the previous two movies that we've seen this year. So that includes Black Widow and Shang-Chi. They... They seem to be making a big deal of the fact that Chloe Zhao, an Oscar-winning director, is going to be working on this film, you know? So it's a film that has a lot of... that's pretty grand in its look and its feel. And, uh, yeah, it just seems like they're sticking to that. What do you think, Drew? From what we've seen of the trailer for Eternals, I think the scope of it definitely makes it stand out compared to the other two flicks that we've gotten this year. And even the Spider-Man movie that we're going to get later. Yeah. Out of all the movies that were slated for this year, I think that trailer was the one that drew my attention the most. It's it's the one that made me most interested in, in watching the movie. Yeah. I don't even think I can say that I'm an expert or a diehard Eternals kind of reader. Like, I'll admit, I haven't even read the Jack Kirby Eternals. Mm -hmm, and that's, mm -hmm. you know, he's the creator of them. And, you know, that kind of sets the foundations for everything that these characters have been involved in ever since. But it, it's just, it just so happens that that was, that's always been one of my, my gaps in my Marvel reading history. Yeah. But we have read other Eternals comics, and uh, I mean, we're about to dissect one of the most famous ones uh, later in this episode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I uh, think the thing that drew me to the movie, at least in the trailer, was 
just seeing the the scope of it i mean the 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 concept of eternals in and of itself is something that kind of calls for uh, an ensemble cast to really come together and you know it's a story that that is meant to be epic in yeah. every sense of the word because these are supposed to be beings that have lived on earth for you know millennia yeah they're supposed they're to like be far protectors removed from people yeah they're far removed from people but they're the protectors of of this planet yeah and from what we've seen in the trailer i'm there are a couple tidbits i'm interested in seeing how they explain them in the movie but i'm kind of curious to see how they explain where the eternals were during everything that we've seen in the past uh you know since the mcu began mm. i think there was a line in the movie that said something about how when when the avengers were fighting thanos and the hulk used the gauntlet to bring everybody back to life there was some kind of energy spike and that was what awakened the eternals so i mean if that's the whole explanation behind it i, I guess i guess that that's that but if there's anything more than that i'd i'd be i'm curious to see how they go about explaining why these supposedly heroic kind of characters basically did nothing when the yeah. earth needed protection the most <laughs> well that's interesting that you uh bring that up because the the line and scene that automatically jumps out at me is there's a part in the trailer where I don't think you see who's talking to who, but um, in voiceover, you hear two uh, individuals talking and one person says to another, um, how do you explain not being active when Thanos was doing what he was doing to the human race? For that matter, how do you explain not uh, taking role for any of the countless things that have happened over the entire span of time that you've been on this planet, you know? Right, uh, and their, ex somebody said that their sole purpose was to fight the deviants. Yeah, well, yeah, and they were instructed, essentially, not to uh, meddle in the affairs of uh, humanity. So, I, I mean, I took that on face value, but I I'm sure they'll build more into that. I do think it would be interesting to see if there was a version of the Eternals. I mean, although they do seem pretty heroic, uh, and, and this is something that I'll probably talk about when we, we discuss the comics more, but there there is something about the Eternals as a concept where I think I'd be more fascinated with the idea of them kind of leaning into just being these almost godlike beings that are just so removed from humanity that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily unfeeling, but, you know, they're not maybe as connected to us as we would like or as mm -hmm. human as we would like, I guess. Sure, sure. And, and I'm sure that depending on the individual eternal that that level of coldness will vary 
Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense too. Totally. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's the it's a movie that should be pretty entertaining. Yeah. Just based on what we've seen in the trailer. I remember uh, last time when we were talking about Shang-Chi when Justin was on with us in our episode, he talked about how he wasn't a fan of Chloe Zhao's movies. Yeah. But this could be the thing, man, that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that gives him some entertainment. If I had to Cause, be, because what I remember, what yeah. him, what I remember that he said was that her, some of her movies had a lot of amateurish, or not amateurish, like unprofessional actors. Yeah. You know, like they were they weren't professional actors. She's they the kind of director who likes to cast from life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So maybe with the story that has, uh, or a movie that that features professional actors. Yeah, it could be different. And well, I guess the other thing to factor in is it is a Marvel movie, so you got to figure that the typical Disney style is gonna have a major impact on how everything is presented in the final product. Yeah, she has limitations in terms of what she can and can't do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she can't make uh, you know. She can't make one of the villains, or she can't make one of the heroes a cannibal or something, I imagine. Although it would be a bold move. That would be pretty bold. Yeah. But Marvel didn't even allow Black Widow to be a child killer, so I don't have yeah. any confidence that they would make a cannibal villain in their movie. Yeah. I would love to see a version of the Eternals where Sprite, as an Eternal just eats people because he can <laughs> for fun he just chomps into baby heads like apples <laughs> that's how he stays so young <laughs> <laughs> the With sweet sweet blood of eats. children <laughs> mm, give me that bag of baby hearts <laughs> yeah exactly uh but i was actually gonna say you know um yeah hearing what justin had to say he's he's probably uh got more sophisticated tastes than i do uh when it comes to film or whatnot but i actually thought that the eternals trailer from what i've seen looks pretty good you know the shots yeah. are beautiful and the yeah. music the mood uh that's like established by all of it is you know, um, here, here, let me let me say this. Uh, I remember when uh, the Shang Chi trailers were dropping, and you know they the studios have gotten into the habit of dropping several trailers before a final trailer, before you know the actual release of the movie. Um, mm -hmm. You know the trailers that came out were fine, but I I can't say that they did anything to instill in me a sense that the movie was going to be any greater than what it was going to be mm -hmm. where with the Eternals, the more I've seen from it, I guess the more hopeful or the more, yeah, the more hopeful that I am that, or not hopeful, the more my expectations for it to be good are heightened, I guess. You know? Yeah, yeah. 
With yeah. those heightened expectations, do you think you're inherently, naturally inclined to like it more than something like Shang-Chi, oh. which you were kind of prepared to dislike? Uh, no, I think I'll play fair. I mean, like, if I watch it and it ends up not being something that I'm... I, I think it might even have the opposite effect. Like if 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 my if it ends up not being as good as what I hoped it would be, or you know, if they just end up doing a bunch of if the characters all end up doing a bunch of just stupid things that don't make any sense, mm-hmm. uh I might be more inclined after the fact to just be like to feel like I was sold uh a bad bill of goods. Is that is that I don't even know if that's the correct uh, saying but you know um yeah like I, I i think with higher expectations if 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 i yeah if i end up watching it and i i'm not satisfied i'll it, it could sour me even worse on it mm-hmm. okay okay yeah that, that makes sense yeah i have another question for you albert but i wanted to know what do you know about the Eternals as a concept? Yeah, so the Eternals wasn't something that I knew anything about. Well, okay, not anything. Uh, like, I probably knew the most basic stuff. Like, I was aware of Jack Kirby, uh, who was the, the mastermind and the creator of the Eternals. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, Jack Kirby was a guy who created so much that, uh, you know, growing up and having only kind of this peripheral awareness of of his body of work, I I think they all just kind of blended together because, you know, the Eternals as a theme is kind of one of the pet themes that Jack Kirby goes to a lot, which is, mm-hmm. you know, there's there exists in secret a a race of these um, magical or extra powerful beings that have existed mm-hmm. outside of uh, our normal society, right? So yeah. we've seen it again, and again, again and again with, you know, the Inhumans or the Fourth World, and the Eternals was just like another example of it. I don't know where the Eternals come in the timeline of things that he was he released. I want to say that it was kind of towards the uh back end of of his yeah career. i've got a i've got the timeline of it. it it's yeah so in the early 70s kirby left marvel to go to dc and at that point he began his new gods comics the fourth world stuff so that that was uh you know jimmy olsen <laughs> the new gods mr miracle and the forever people and to collectively those, those four books were regarded were known as the fourth world uh, comics. And at some point uh, in the mid seventies, he came back to Marvel. So the Eternals is part of that. His second, uh, his second tenure yeah, at Marvel. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, his, him coming back to Marvel in the seventies. So he, yeah. he launched Eternals in, 1976 it lasted maybe about 20 issues or so Uh and i was also reading an essay from mark evanier who was 
Kirby's assistant, and he also wrote a Kirby biography called Kirby King of Comics. I think that's what it was called. But he wrote the introduction to the Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Eternals hardcover. It's probably in the trade paperback edition as well. And he spoke. He wrote a little bit about the genesis of Eternals and how Kirby came up with the idea. So it's it sounds like Kirby liked to to read a lot of interesting books about history. And one of the books that he read, and this was a book from the six, late 60s called Chariots of the Gods with a question mark, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past, written by Eric von Deniken. And it was published mm. in 1968. And from what I know about this book from a cursory search on Wikipedia and also what Mark Evanier described, the book basically looked at how in the, in the distant past, uh, you know, throughout history, a lot of ancient structures and and things that human beings that civilizations have constructed are more sophisticated than what should have been possible so uh, eric von deniken's thesis was that or his hypothesis was that a lot of these ancient the only reason why a lot of these ancient structures were able to to be constructed was because aliens or extraterrestrial visitors mm. came and built them or at the very least came and taught the humans who lived at that time how to how to build them you know yeah, it's very yeah. fanciful kind of stuff i don't really think most educated people today would give that any kind of credence but that was something that i guess in the 60s uh it, it made people uh wonder you know like they were the examples given in the book were things like the Egyptian pyramids or Stonehenge, those Easter Island statues. So things of that nature, it's like they're kind of mysteries, right? Like how did people think of constructing those things? And his answer yeah. was that gods or, or yeah, gods um, or aliens visited humanity in the past. And those extraterrestrials were kind of like gods in, in that sense, you know, because they they provided men with knowledge that uh, they weren't, they didn't naturally uh, learn. So the, the the background is that Kirby was kind of fascinated by that book and that idea, and he wanted to do a, his own version of that, a version, a story that discussed or presented how there have been these extraterrestrials who might as well be gods compared mm -hmm. to humanity and how they visited people in the past and basically affected uh, the planet and, and how society has developed. Yeah, yeah. Like one of the things about Eternals is the Celestials. So in if you for those of you who have seen the the movie trailer, there's a shot of a Celestial during the trailer which is this gigantic cosmic space god it it just kind of looks like a robot in a way like it doesn't have a a human face there's yeah it's obviously got a head and and there are some uh spots or or it's covered dots. in like glyphs or something I, yeah. I don't know if that's the proper term for it but I, yeah it, it, it's probably not the technical term for it but 
but because our vocabulary is limited, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> we am smart. <laughs> yes, it's shiny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, they're like, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know how to describe them other than, like, they they look almost like pretty sophisticated markings or carvings mm-hmm. on, on their body. So their their body is still humanoid in in its design. So it's got two arms, two legs, and a head, but mm-hmm. each each celestial is of a different color. And their body is, other than, um, you know, the fact that they have a humanoid shape, they 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 usually have some some pretty unique markings on each of them, mm-hmm. and some of them might even have uh, I I don't know how else to describe it, but like outgrowths from their from their heads, uh, mm-hmm. but it's all very um mysterious looking i guess yeah the, the way that i think gaiman envisioned them or the way that he described them to john romita jr was that they're they're basically like stone machines like they they kind of look like they're carved out of stone but but they look like they're metal so it's like a combination of of sculpture and technology yeah and i, I think that's one of the things that john romita jr was able to depict pretty well in the comic but anyway what i was saying about uh kirby's original conception of the idea of eternals is that these celestials were the were the gods that visited earth eons ago when yeah earth was a very young planet and then they seeded uh the they, they yeah they basically left the Eternals and the Deviants on Earth, and they went away, and and that's kind they of treated the, it like a science experiment, right? Just it, to kind of see I'm, what would happen. It's either that, or it's just for a very mysterious purpose that is left ambiguous and unknown to okay. to uh, to the rest of us. Like they're they're there's I guess they're supposed to be unknowable because they are alien or they are like gods essentially. And the interest, one of the interesting think things ever spoken, like, like they're always like voiceless, right? I believe so. I I can't think of a comic where we hear their voices. Okay, sorry. They, they're, sorry to they're definitely intelligent. And they they have they speak. Yeah. And, I mean, they communicate to each other. I don't know if they they vocalize things in in like a word balloon or anything like that. Yeah. But I was sorry also going to gonna say. Yeah, no worries. I was also going to say that Kirby's original idea for the series was that it was not going to be in the Marvel Universe. Mm. He wanted mm. to just do his own thing. You know, he wanted to tell his story about these alien gods and the 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 different peoples that they left on Earth to grow up alongside or live among humanity as it developed over the millennia. And mm. it was only because because of Marvel's editorial mandates where they, they basically demanded that he include them or, or integrate them into the Marvel universe. So if you look at some of his old Eternals comics, there's a, an issue where they, they fight the Hulk, but it's not really the Hulk. It's, it's a robot Hulk. So, you know, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a way to stick it to them. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, you guys want the Hulk? Here's the Hulk. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> a robot. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So that, that that's what I know about Kirby's original idea of the Eternals. Yeah. Like I was saying, it, it didn't last that long. I think it was around 20 issues or so. Yeah, then, I don't think it's something that made quite as much of an impact as some of his, or at the very least, it didn't have quite as lasting an impact as some of his other stuff until, you know, more recently, years. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, he, he created a lot in his time, and I guess they just finally got to it, <laughs> you know? In, in terms of going over his entire backlog of material. Yeah, totally, totally. Were you, like, what, growing up when you thought of the Eternals, did you have any feelings for them as a, as, as a concept? Not really. I mean, yeah. I was aware of them. I, I had an idea of what some of them looked like because... Yeah. There was an 80s Eternals series. I don't think that one lasted very long, too. That one might have been... It might have been 12 issues. Mm. And I want to say it was written by Peter B. Gillis, who was someone who, who had written quite a bit in the 80s. But I remember coming across random issues of that in those... You know those packs that you would buy at Toys R Us that had yeah, yeah, like, yeah. five random comics? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so... That's how I came across a random issue of it. It was one of those things where I didn't really get it. And I'm not, because it's been so long since I read it, you know, I was a kid at the time. So I'm not sure if I didn't get it because it was just a bad 80s comic or if I didn't get it just because I was I was too young to really appreciate something that was a little bit older compared to the contemporary modern, or not modern, but the the 90s comics that I had been accustomed to. You know, it was it's quite different from Yeah. I don't know. X Men from the nineties. Yeah. So I I knew the basics not the basics, I knew what some of them looked like and that that was pretty much it. And I, I knew what the celestials were because they showed up in yeah. the Infinity Gauntlet and various other cosmic comic books that I was always into in the nineties too. So it feels like for the longest time the Celestials as concept like outlasted the actual Eternals themselves. Like they were popping yeah. up more than the Eternals were in, in comics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The Eternals were definitely pretty forgotten for a significant amount of time in the nineties. Yeah. One of the Eternals, Cersei, she, for some reason, I don't know really, I don't really know why she had some staying power, I guess. Cause she was actually a member of the Avengers. Do you remember I remember that? that. Yeah, I do. It was, yeah. uh, she was probably one of the only two Eternals that I could think of, because Icarus, Icarus was, was, uh, he's, he's probably the most recognizable one, and Cersei was the other one because she was the one on the Avengers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, she was even part of the team during that really bad era when they wore brown leather jackets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like she lasted. Yeah. I I, it, I don't really know what the appeal was, uh, other than she was an attractive super heroine. 
What but, else do you need, man? What other true. reason do you need? That's, uh... It's a testament to how shallow I am. So, yeah, <laughs> you're right. I don't need anything else. <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I Here's the thing. I... I want to say that for whatever reason, I would see her like I don't remember reading any comics with her on the actual roster, like in the Avengers. I don't remember her doing anything as part of the Avengers, right? Well, that whole era but, of Avengers didn't have too many memorable moments, in my opinion. Really? Oh, you're talking about the the brown leather jacket era or like even yeah. the stuff before that? Brown leather jacket, 90s era Avengers. That was a pretty bad time to be an Avengers fan. I mean, but wasn't she on the Avengers even before then, though? Yeah, she was on that team. Like, when I think before the brown leather jacket era, she was... I forget which era of the team it was, but I remember she had that her trademark green costume at yeah. some point, too. That was the look that I probably remember her remember the most for her. And even then, I, here's here's the one thought that I had about her as a character when I was a kid. I could never figure out what she did or what her powers were. I was yeah. Like, what is her contribution to this team? <laughs> you know? It's beautiful. Yeah. What else do you need, Albert? Yeah. Again. You think once, an ugly person can save the world? I think we have categorically confirmed as absolute certainty that ugly people have no value to society whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, man. We're recording a podcast here. We're contributing something. We can record comic book podcasts, man. There's a reason why nobody sees our faces. (laughs) Friend. Friend. You be friend. I don't even know what that's a reference to, but you're making me laugh. This is probably my just pulling some fake elephant man reference. Okay. (laughs) You know? Uh, That's that's probably the closest thing that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the Eternals go as as a comic book series at Marvel... After that 80s series, they didn't have their own series until about 2006, which is when Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. did their Eternals miniseries. And that's the book that we're here to primarily discuss in this episode. Yeah. Actually, I got one quick question for you while we were on the subject of, like, Icarus and Cersei, right? Icarus? Icarus. Ike Harris? Ike sandwiches. <laughs> the only yes. sandwich that won't drive you crazy. Have an Ike sandwich. This episode was brought to you by Ike's Sandwiches, the preferred sandwich provider of Between the Gutters. Uh, give us that sweet, sweet money, Ike. <laughs> or we'll burn your house down. <laughs> <laughs> what was your question? Okay. 
So the other thing about Icarus that always stuck out in my mind, and this was something that never really changed, was in terms of his look, I only recognize him in my memory because he always had that bowl cut He-Man hair look. Yeah. Like for years. Like, I even want to say even in like current incarnations, he still got that haircut. I can see it, man. He definitely looks like He-Man. Yeah. Did you, did that ever like impact you or did you ever like have any thoughts on that when you saw that? (laughs) I thought he looked like the... I thought the Eternals looked like the masters of the universe because he looked like He-Man. Really? But I guess that's about it. Really? Huh. I kind of associated them as being pretty similar visually, mainly because of the reason you just described. That's interesting. That bowl cut, man. It, and he's uh, he's got that k- kind of stocky build, or at least the way that Kirby yeah. drew him. He He looked sort of like a He-Man type of character. Yeah. It's, I guess, I'm pretty sure he predates He-Man, but because yeah. I was a kid, I, I knew what He-Man was before. I knew who Icarus was. Yeah. I think it was just weird to me because even as a kid, I wasn't a big fan of that hair. And then when I would see him sporadically throughout the years, to see that he always had that hair, in my mind, I was just like, they never think to like update his look. <laughs> look, man, he has been around since the dawn of time and he's always had the same haircut so for the majority of his entire existence that hairstyle was ahead of the curve that's true he he does not follow the trends he makes them exactly exactly kind of reminds me of that guy the guy who uh you'd probably know his name the dude who owns the raiders mark davis (laughs) (laughs) yeah he reminds me of mark davis like that dude is so rich and so powerful he doesn't need to look you know he doesn't need to adhere to what society deems good looking or cool or popular he can he he's completely confident in his money and his power and his wealth that (laughs) he can look however he wants he can have a super cuts bowl haircut and it's okay because he doesn't care what you think mark davis is the real life ike harris (laughs) (laughs) see that's the one area that the eternals movie got wrong they should have got him to be ike harris yeah they should have gotten mark davis to play icarus (laughs) you like that that was that was good, man. I, I wasn't you. expecting you to go there. That Thank was you. good. Thank you. Yeah, so in 2006, we got this Neil Gaiman, John Romita Jr. miniseries, which was then followed up the next year by a short-lived Eternals ongoing series by, I think it was by Charlie and Daniel Nauf and, yeah. and drawn by Daniel Acuna. Yeah, that series didn't last long either. It it was probably, I don't even think it made ten issues, man. Yeah, I want to say it made it to like seven or something like that before it got canceled. Yeah, yeah. And so that that must have ended around early in two thousand nine, and yeah. it wasn't until 
the beginning of 2021 that we've had another proper Eternals ongoing series. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, as, as you can see, you know, over time, the Eternals is a concept that Marvel obviously knows they have it in their in their library or yeah. in their wheelhouse. Yeah. But they've never really been able to to make it last or make it stick. You know, they yeah. they haven't they haven't hit on the formula to make it something that has become a staple in their lineup of titles. Yeah. Until hopefully the present day, you know, I, I think with the movie coming out, it's probably a really good sign for the comic book series as well. Yeah. You kind of think about what happened to guardians of the galaxy. The movie was definitely a boon to that title, you know? Yeah. And so you got to figure the same thing could happen to Eternals. Yeah. And based on, you know, the the ensemble cast of characters that they've shown in the trailer, it, you know, they, they're a cool looking group of group of people, you know, I'm mm-hmm. I, I uh, uh, like to go back to your Guardians of the Galaxy reference. Um, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy as a comic when I was growing up wasn't something that I had ever thought of. And when the movie came out, those that version of them is now solidified in my brain as the version of the Guardians of the Galaxy that I think of, you know? That's the definitive Guardians of the Galaxy? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, for us to get this Eternals, there's a chance that, you know, uh, with all the with all the ingredients at their disposal that they're going to create a version of the Eternals that is going to be the de facto version of the Eternals when I think about the Eternals, you know? Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I I mean, what's what's his name? I do like the, the dude that they got to be uh, Icarus, even though he doesn't have a bowl haircut, but... Uh, he's not even blonde. He's not even blonde, but yeah. he was in Game of Thrones. So. Richard Madden. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know what? This is total uh, total sidetrack. Yeah, no, I don't yeah. think he's related to John Madden. <laughs> what are you gonna say? I was I was gonna say Richard Madden, like the way he looks. Yeah. I get him kind of confused with Sebastian Stan. <laughs> Do you think really? he looks similar, or is that just me? No, I could see it. I definitely see it. I was also gonna say that. And this, this, I'll cop to this one because I, I don't think, when I really think about it, they don't look alike. But because they're just so closely associated with each other, I, I kind of get them mixed up sometimes. But I get him kind of mixed up with the guy that played Jon Snow sometimes. Kit Harrington. <laughs> yeah. He's but, in this movie too, man. He is. But I will say Kit Harrington, I like because he ended up being on the show so much longer than, uh. What's his name? Richard Madden. Richard Madden. That I, yeah, like Kit Harrington is probably more front and center in my mind. Because yeah. I remember when Richard Madden's character, spoiler, spoiler, when his, uh, when his character exited Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> when his character exited game of thrones uh you know to to say sail off into the sunset to you know become Live an happily accountant. ever after he, he became an accountant um like 
I think he was in one movie after that. Uh, I want to say like be, uh, not Beauty and the Beast, but I think it was like Cinderella or something. Yeah, then, I think he played the he played Prince Charming or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then you didn't really hear anything about him for a while after that. Like the this this Eternals project was kind of the big. Like I'm sure he he did other stuff, but I like none of it was nearly as big as Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't watch as many movies as as you do so i'm not super well versed in in famous actors and stuff but i yeah i I can't think of anything that he's been in since game of thrones and the cinderella movie yeah so oh oh shall we talk about the book that we are here to dissect yeah, I, that's what I was thinking of. I was going to say, in regards to the Eternals comic, um, one of the things I wanted to mention about it, actually, was that mm-hmm. when you said, what was that, 2006? Yes, the Neil Gaiman, J.R. Jr. Yes. series. So up to that point, I feel like you, you mentioned earlier that we had had sporadic Eternal series here and there, but nothing ever really hit, and there wasn't any real lasting impression other than the Jack Kirby stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Marvel announced that Neil Gaiman and uh, John Romita Jr. were going to be on this, they really did like this huge full court press to put this book out there, you know, cause Neil Gaiman yeah. was a huge get. He was this guy who he's was still just, a big name. He's still a big name. He's just this literary like darling. Right. And, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he had done well. He he did 1602 at Marvel. Uh, that was yes. like his first big project at Marvel. But up to that point, I don't even know had he worked on anything at Marvel up to that point. No, 1602 was, was his, his very only other first... Marvel credit, and then he and then it's it was this Eternals story. He was yeah at that point he was known as the Sandman guy and a famous novelist. You know that yeah. was yeah he was just a like you said, a literary darling. So for Marvel to be able to get him to come over and do something for him, that yeah. that was a victory. I think when 1602 came out, that was something. There was a lot of hoopla about it. That yeah, that got so much attention because it was like, oh, Neil Gaiman left DC and now he's at Marvel. Let's we got to see what he's gonna do. And, and everybody was just hoping and hoping that he would do a Sandman level yeah, kind of story exactly. at marvel so when 1602 came out i think people were pretty disappointed yeah it was yeah it, it's it's something where his name and the expectation probably s- might have helped to set it up for failure a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah and there was so much hype a lot of marketing around it because of his name so it was one. It was also one of those things where I think because it was his name, people that normally didn't buy Marvel comics were gonna buy this comic because it was him. And for those of you who don't even remember what 1602 was, it was just Neil Gaiman taking I think eight issues to do a story about the 1960s Marvel characters, but set in the year 1602. So it was his yeah. chance to play with the toys that he liked when he was a little kid and that that was pretty much it 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 wasn't really 
it wasn't a high concept. It was yeah. it was yeah. pretty straightforward. It was pretty much just him. Yeah, it's like you said, Fun him taking comic. yeah, taking pre-existing characters and just putting them in a setting of his choosing. Yeah, it yeah. was basically what if the Marvel Silver Age began in 1602. Yeah, you know that that's basically what it was. It's it was, a it wasn't it didn't reach the literary depths that something like Sandman reached on a consistent yeah. basis. You know, this 1602 was really just a straightforward adventure Superhero comic. Superhero comic, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing, though, right? It's it's like you said, <clears throat> people were expecting him to to do something just that was like high art, something literary. Yeah. And. And, you know, it drew the attention of people who, like you said, weren't from comics. And it's, yeah, I guess it's just a weird, it's it's weird to think of Gaiman just wanting to do just, it reminds me of The Simpsons, right? You remember that one Simpsons episode where they had uh, Daniel Close uh, on the episode? And yeah. Daniel yeah. Close is known, known for doing, like, Ghost World. And, uh-huh. you know, they're at the comic shop getting autographs and they're like, Daniel Close, oh, I really like your comics. They really, you know, uh, do an interesting study of suburban life or whatever, right? And he goes, yeah, ugh, comics like that, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, I'm really good at drawing utility belts. I hope that they get me to do Batman or something like that. You remember yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of feels like that. <laughs> you know? Um, like everybody thought Gaiman was going to do something highfalutin and then he just does something with the avengers and spider-man and yeah. the x-men and all of them you get to see a pilgrim version of the avengers fighting you know fighting a civil war sort of thing i i, I don't even really fully remember what the story was I, I think it was them trying to figure out why they were in 1602 yeah i don't think they most of them didn't realize that they didn't belong in that time. It, yeah, yeah. It's it's been a few years since I I read it, and I actually think I might have given my copy to a kid mm. because it it wasn't something that I've you know I read it I I owned the trade paperback and I read it a few times and yeah I think the last time I read it I was like you know I don't think I really need to own this and I can just clear out a little space and give yeah. it to somebody who who can really enjoy it you know yeah so no, uh, yeah I don't I even think I own it anymore I think it's definitely something that you could give to a kid and they'd be able to like just eat that stuff up you know mm-hmm. i mean totally. i i don't necessarily know if they'd com- be able to comprehend why steve rogers slash captain america is uh a native american or <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> or all the other random stuff but whatever they, they'll have the rest of their lives to figure that out yeah, I mean, at the end but, of the day, it's it's really simply a fun adventure comic. Yeah, it's yeah. got action, intrigue. It's thrilling. The art's pretty good. Yeah, I think it was one of the Kubert brothers. Can't remember which one. I want to say Andy, say but I could be wrong. Oh, it was Adam? Okay. I believe was he the one who did uh, Wolverine Origins? I think that I think Origins might have been Andy, but I okay. Again, then I could you're be right. Wrong. You're right. Then I think it's Andy. It was one of the Kubert brothers. Yeah. 
But um, but when they announced Eternals, I mean, I think they were still riding pretty high on the fact that it was Gaiman. You oh, know? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think even though a lot of people were disappointed in 1602, sales-wise, it still was a big hit. Yeah. So, and Gaiman himself, he was still a big name, just as he's still a big name today. Yeah. So for them to get him to do this long-forgotten Jack Kirby title, mm-hmm. that that felt like a win for Marvel, another win, you know? And this was yeah. during a period when they were kind of hitting on all cylinders. Bendis was deep into Avengers, and, you know, New Avengers was becoming the flagship series. This Eternal series came out right around the time that Civil War was happening, which was one of the biggest events of that decade. Yeah. So yeah. Gaiman's name was a big selling point, and I think people had learned to, after 1602, that experience, people kind of tempered their expectations to yeah. not really demand or expect so much from Gaiman. You know, no one was thinking, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be Marvel's Sandman. Yeah. You know, like, no, I don't yeah. think anybody was saying that at this point, whereas they were saying that with 1602. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, with the Eternals, it was like, okay, he's he's just going to do something with Kirby's uh, series here. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And uh, from what I do know, it was originally supposed to be a six-issue miniseries. Uh-huh. But he had so much story, it became seven issues. And if you look at the first and the last issue, both of those are double-sized issues. And I think even some of the issues in the middle have... A couple extra pages here and there mm. so it's it's a little bit longer than your typical seven issue 22 page comics collection yeah. you know like this is probably closer to like an 11 issue story just in terms of page count okay i'll do a rundown of the credits this is eternals the seven issue miniseries from 2007 or 2006 obviously created by jack kirby writer is Neil Gaiman, Pencils by John Romita Jr., Inks by Danny Mickey and Tom Palmer with Tim Townsend, Jesse Delperdang, and Klaus Janssen, Colors by Matt Hollingsworth with Paul Mounts and Dean White, Letters by the incomparable legend Todd Klein, Cover Art by Rick Berry, Assistant Edited by Sean Ryan, Edited by Nick Lowe. As you can see, lots of inkers and multiple colorists on this comic, but it it's still considered, you know, a John Romita joint, John Romita Jr. joint. You want to give a brief synopsis of the story, Albert? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll give it a shot. So we start the series with, uh, we we see various. Well, okay. The first shot is of uh, Mark Curry, just a seemingly average guy uh, living in the city. But, you know, he he starts having dreams of this other life and this other existence, and it just feels so real to him. And as the series progresses, we encounter other characters uh, who are having similar experiences in the world. And it turns out that um, something is compelling them Oh, and I I just want to be sure this is the spoil-free version of this of the synopsis, right? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So something is compelling them to 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 have these visions and um you know Ike Harris is probably the one who has more awareness of what's going on than the rest of them and he's going out of his way to try to encounter these other individuals that are experiencing these dreams and to try to convince them that these visions and dreams that they were these eternals, these beings, those aren't just, just dreams. They're actually who they are. And yeah. And, and that's, I guess a brief spoil free version of the story. It's just about, um, you know, uh, Ike Harris trying to find out what the mystery behind what happened to the Eternals was and to get them back to a place where they can, you know, come back to normal, I guess, or come back to discovering who they who they are supposed to be, who they were. Yeah. Um, if you, is there anything you wanted to add? All I would really say is that the core concept of the Eternals was that the Celestials came to Earth millennia ago and left the Eternals and the Deviants on Earth. Right. And then the Celestials left. And ever since then, the Eternals and the Deviants have basically been at war with each other. Yeah. And one of the things that I don't, because I haven't really read the Kirby series, I don't know if this was something that that he specifically injected into their story or if this was a game-in invention, but the Eternals were meant to protect the Celestials according to what we learn in this particular story. Yeah. So it's all, it's kind of a story about the these normal people, or they're Eternals, but for whatever reason, they've forgotten their memories. Yeah. And they're living like normal human beings. And they're slowly being awakened into remembering who and what they were and what their purpose is. Exactly. So it, it's interesting to me that that was the idea behind it because that's not really the first time we've seen that concept. And it, it's something that Neil Gaiman, I remember uh, he was originally rumored to to write Thor for Marvel Comics right around this time period. Mm-hmm. Like during that period after Avengers disassembled when Thor was dead. Yeah. They were talking about how when Thor gets relaunched. They wanted Neil Gaiman, Gaiman to do it. Yeah, Neil Gaiman was going to do it. And it was going to be a similar concept as this Eternal story where where it was about, the, about Thor and the Asgardians coming back to life after Ragnarok. Yeah, and they were just kind of normal people, and they didn't remember who they were. Yeah, they were they would slowly be awakened to remember their their heritage. Yeah, that's pretty similar to what Joe Michael Straczynski ended up doing when he did Thor. Yeah, right around this time period as well. So I I think I think Neil Gaiman had made that pitch to Marvel, or you know probably talked to some editors there and that was probably the direction they wanted Thor to go. But mm-hmm. when he wasn't able to write it himself, 
I guess they just got J. Michael Straczynski to do his spin on that idea. Yeah. Which is another interesting, like, tidbit was just a, you know, just a few years ago, Neil Gaiman actually did end up writing a book on Norse mythology. <laughs> yeah. 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 A novel. Yeah, a novel where he did kind of, uh, I, I want to say he he did a contemporary retelling of the entire Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I I don't I didn't read it, so I don't know anything else about it. I just remember it had a cool looking cover. It did. It did. So, I guess since we never got to read his Thor, that could be the closest thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally, yeah. man. Totally. Yeah, but you're you're totally right. Like, you know, Neil Gaiman is known as the Sandman guy, and the Sandman, like, the entire crux of that story is about dreams and the power of dreams. So it 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 seems like one of his pet themes that he returns to is, you know, the idea of, like, these people dreaming reality into existence, you know? Yeah, which is basically what mythology and storytelling really are, you know, when you boil it right yeah. down to it. Like he he definitely likes stories that are about storytelling and about mythology and exploring legends and and things of that nature. Yeah. I think we we do see elements of that in his eternal story. There's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of playing around with not only Marvel mythology but but Kirby mythology as well yeah. as uh you know imagining the internal mythology within the story, which is the idea of the celestials coming to Earth deep in the past and seeding yeah. Earth with these different species. Yeah. And on top of that, he plays with like mythology, mythology, because these characters are all named after mm-hmm. various kinds of gods throughout history, you know? That's so right. It's, 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 com- he's coming at it from all directions. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely when, I'm sure when Kirby was coming up with the characters, you know, he he wasn't necessarily the most subtle kind of writer, you know, like a lot of <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this a lot of the stuff that he came up with was just straight up punch you in the face. Yeah. But I think that that level of bluntness and straightforwardness combined with his energy just made it work on a really visceral level. So that's why we have guys that are or we have pe- characters that are named after mythological gods like Icarus, even though it's spelled differently, or or Circe, yeah. which is also spelled differently. Yeah. But you know, it, it it's it's that idea of, of these unknowable beings who are essentially so far above humans. What, yeah, that they might as well be regarded as as gods of some sort. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what did you just overall, Albert? What did you think? of the Neil Gaiman, John Romita Jr. Eternals series. Did you like it? What are so your spoil-free general thoughts <laughs> and impressions? So this this might come off like a bunch of backhanded compliments. But Dude, those are the only compliments you give, <laughs> Albert. You don't even have to qualify it as backhanded compliments. Well, I still feel like I need to mention it, if only because... 
I want people to know that I did actually enjoy the series and I do. Yeah, I like it, you know, so um, but what I was going to say was. That me not having read any Eternals comic, I I can honestly say that if this was my introduction to the Eternals, this was probably the best Eternals story that I had read up to that point. Mm-hmm. And it it definitely was something that at the time held my attention and made me want to read continue to read more if they were going if you know Gaiman was going to explore it further and quite honestly uh 1602 wasn't necessarily my my bag but uh it wasn't your cup of tea man it, it wasn't you know i it, mean it, oh, it didn't out sandman sandman to you <laughs> well okay yeah i i'd even say that that's harsh like i didn't hate it or anything it was it was a fine comic, you know, but I, I was like you in the sense that I I didn't even buy the hardcover. I collected it in issues, you know, so I was reading yeah. it as it was coming out. And when I finally got to the end of it, so I had, like I said, I had been reading it as it was coming out. And once I finally got to that last issue and processed it, it wasn't really anything that excited me it wasn't anything that really jumped out at me anything that i necessarily felt like i needed didn't resonate uh i suppose not you know yeah um so so but but his eternals after having read uh, 1602 was was definitely more interesting to me than that and it wasn't even the fact that you know the eternals took place in the current marvel universe it, like just the just the overall plot was more interesting to me than a time you know seeing a time displaced version of the marvel universe mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so yeah i can understand that yeah so and and I I'd even say that there are particular scenes in it that I thought that still that I still think of to this day as just you know pretty pretty powerful for their drama. Um, yeah, uh, that 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 was my general overall thought. I'm I'm not gonna give away the scene quite yet. I'll wait for spoilful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When we get to that part, and then we we can I, I'll talk about that in in a little bit of uh, in in a little bit more detail. Sure, sure. What about you, Drew? So this was probably either the the third or fourth time that I've read this miniseries. I read it when it first came out, and then when I got my hardcover, I read it a couple times over the years. I will say that when I first read it, I was pretty high on it. And I think with each subsequent reading, I'm less and less high on it. And I, I don't really know why. That that was one thing that, that I was trying to figure out after I finished it this week in preparation for our podcast. Because the last time I read this comic, it was relatively recent. It was probably within the past three or four years. So it, you know, it, it's it's not like I read it like, 
12 years ago or something, you know, it was, it was still relatively fresh in my mind. Like I hadn't forgotten most of the things that, that happened in it. And I was trying to figure out why it, it just felt like that feeling I had the first time I read it was no longer there. Yeah. I think part of it is just kind of evolution in personal tastes as, as far as art goes. Cause I, I really am not a big fan of John Romita Jr.'s artwork. Mm. Like I'm, I'm not a Jr. Jr. hater or anything, but he's not my favorite artist. Yeah, I think I think he's usually he's usually fine when it comes to to Cape comics, but when it comes to to comics that stand out in my mind for their visuals, he's not ever really somebody that I think of as oh that guy's art is awesome or. He's not one of those guys where I'll pick up a comic just because it has his artwork, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it's really more of just personal aesthetics as a as an artist and a, as a from a technical standpoint, you know, I, I think he does fine work. Like his his stuff is exciting and and it, it looks like good, solid superhero comics. And I, I'll even say that there are some pages and drawings in, in this series that were pretty awesome. Like his Celestials, I mentioned them earlier, his Celestials look really good. They, yeah. They've got this kind of stone metal texture and they've got this really satisfying bulkiness. And you can really see the scale of them too. You can see how big they really are in comparison to to regular people and the scenery I even liked how he drew Iron Man in some of the earlier issues. Like there's a, I think there's a scene in in issue 2 or 3 where Iron Man finds Cersei in a restaurant and he or I, I think it was a hostage situation that that scene like he he busts yeah. in through a wall and and the way that he's drawn it just looks so casual the way that that he breaks through a solid wall, you know? Like yeah, that, yeah. that's that's a I thought that was a good piece of work right there but there there are just so many other things about his art that i'm not too enamored with mm-hmm. oh wait, Can I? But before i before i go there i will say he, uh just as another positive of his art he does draw nice rain scenes mm-hmm. what were you gonna say albert i was gonna ask um in regards to you know this on uncertainty or this yeah this uncertainty as to why you're less high on it every time you read it i'm kind of curious if you think that there's like a novelty factor that has do you think there there's some sort of novelty factor wearing off for you you know seeing as how gaiman is someone that you uh respect as a writer and you know uh when the first time we read it 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 was definitely not something it was new right it was fresh but now that you know it it no longer has the excitement of this being a neil gaiman joint you know this is this is something that is that we speak about in the past tense right so Now that that's the case, do you feel like that could have any effect on your 
on your overall so. outlook on it. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a case of me trying to trying to plumb the story for thematic depths and and things that that are you know just more interesting than the superficial plot. Yeah. And it it kind of feels like this is a series that is more centered around the plot, the mystery of why these Eternals have forgotten who they are and yeah. what are they going to do next. And also the there's a big element of how this is their reintroduction back into the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it kind of feels like those are the main points that Gaiman and JR Jr. were trying to get across with this miniseries. So mm. I guess to me that it makes it feel a little bit hollow. And I was I was trying to figure out and think about the story to see if there are anything, any themes or bits of depth that, that stand out that make it more interesting to think about as as a story on its own, you know? Because to me, it if if you if your selling point for the story is this brings these characters back into the Marvel Universe continuity, and that's your, you know, your selling point. That doesn't sell me, man. Like, yeah, I, I mean, that doesn't that, do much for you. Yeah, it, it doesn't, man. It doesn't like, do I need, anything I need for you. a little you. bit more than that. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, yeah. It, it's cool in the beginning, you know, like, just to see that. But I think for something that I'm going to reread over, over the years, multiple times, I want to have something that leaves me things to ponder after I put it down, you know? And yeah. I think with this book, what I was mostly pondering was, what can I ponder after reading a Neil Gaiman comic? Yeah. It, it's kind of, I think it's similar to what I felt after reading 1602. Except with 1602, I, I think that one from the it beginning, like I, I enjoyed it, but it, it never felt like there was anything more to think about, you know? Yeah. Like with this, with Eternals, I think there there is something under the surface that's worth thinking about, but I just haven't been able to to reach that point yet. Right, and, right. and on top of that, the, the artwork is kind of a turnoff for me too, because yeah, I I don't know what it is, man. I'm I'm just not a big JR Jr. fan. Like he he can't really draw kids too well. Like if you read Kick Ass, you know, one of the things that he's most known for in, in modern times. That's got a whole bunch of teenagers and even a kid main character with Hit Girl. His kids just look weird and deformed to me. Like they're they got these tiny bodies and gigantic heads. It it's I don't know. I'm not saying that he has to draw in a realistic manner, but I think it's just not the way he draws just isn't something that I vibe with, you know? Like his his line work isn't something that I usually enjoy when he's drawing quiet moments or normal people in everyday settings having conversations i think he's the kind of artist who has the most kind of who has the most fun when he's drawing corporate cape comics you know like when he's drawing superheroes making action poses when he's drawing powerful beings punching each other or shooting lasers from their eyes Mm. the spectacle of it all like that's what i think he is good at that's what i think uh, his, that's when his line work is even fun for me to look at when he's drawing those scenes. But with this Neil Gaiman comic, I mean, Neil Gaiman dr- writes a lot of words, man. So there's a lot of scenes of just people sitting in a coffee shop or, or you know, just in a room talking to each other, and and 
John Romita Jr. drawing those scenes, it, it just doesn't sell those scenes to me very well. Maybe it is the inker too. I mean, there, like I said, there were quite a few inkers on this. So the, it, it's, I've seen other J.R. Jr. comics with different inkers that looked pretty good. Like I, I, I think of when Klaus Janssen inked him in Wolverine, Enemy of the State. Like that's something that I'll look at and be like, yeah, that that's some good J.R. Jr. work. Or uh, if you go back to the '90s and he did Daredevil, Man of Man Without Fear, written by Frank Miller, but dude, the legend Al Williamson inked him on that. That was pretty stunning to look at, even if in those issues he he still drew kids looking weird. But you know, <laughs> it, it's just one of his quirks, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, even when he when he draws uh, the deviants in this story, like those the two main deviants that appear in the story, it it's weird because I th- I think they're supposed to be kind of creepy looking, but to me they just look goofy. They look just kind of like garbage bags with teeth or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm not sure if that's the tone that Gaiman was trying to convey, because. I would have thought that they were they should have been creepy looking instead of silly looking, you know? Right, right. So I, I don't know. There there was just that little tonal difference. And on top of that, dude, so much of the story takes place in San Francisco and it doesn't look <laughs> anything like San Francisco, man. Yeah. It suffers from that thing that movies and even other Marvel or any a lot of comics do where when they try to draw San Francisco, you know, they do the easy thing, which is they they just pick out points of reference that are obviously recognizable as San Francisco as a cheap or a lazy way to signify that it's San Francisco, right? But at the same time, it looks nothing, you know, in terms of where uh landmarks are located or or placed there is no actual um yeah there's it's it's not based in reality right it it yeah. just feels like no matter where you look you could be in a shopping mall and right there there's the bridge for whatever <laughs> there's reason the golden gate right? bridge in this mall i don't <laughs> get it but see it's san francisco you can tell that this is a a mall in San Francisco because the bridge is in this mall. It's in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, he definitely did that. A, a major part of the story happens in Golden Gate Park, and it looks absolutely nothing like Golden Gate Park. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that makes me question, why did they even bother trying to set it in San Francisco if yeah. there was like there was no point to that? This could have taken place in the middle of Kansas or something, you know, it could have taken place in Iowa or Idaho, somewhere in the Midwest where there was a lot more open field and stuff. So it's, it's a little bit perplexing to me why the story takes place in San Francisco. And also why did John Romita Jr. choose not to use any photo reference whatsoever? Yeah. It actually adds to the confusion when I was looking at it. Like yeah. there's a scene, like an overhead pan, an overhead shot in one of the panels that shows the, uh, a celestial. I get, I don't know if this is a big spoiler or not, but 
there's the Dreaming Celestial in in Golden Gate Park, and the way that John Romita Jr. draws the shot, and the way that the surrounding landscape is, it he makes it look like it's in the mountains. So when I first saw it, I thought, wait, is this taking place in the mountains in Marin County? Because the Golden Gate Bridge is right there. And then yeah. I remembered, wait, it's supposed to be Golden Gate Park. Yeah. But the way that he drew it, it just looks like mountains. So yeah. it, it, it just Golden Gate Park is flat, it. man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are no mountains in there are no there aren't even any hills in Golden yeah. Gate Park. <laughs> Um. Yeah, I remember thinking something similar. I sent you a, a a screenshot of this one image where they clearly signify it as Golden Gate Park, right? And there's yeah, this in giant the hill. Yeah, it's in the caption, and they're on a hill, and you can see the bridge in the background. And I'm looking at it, and I'm just like, that that doesn't make any sense because if you walk, and, and again, this might be, I might be. Just making a minor quibble, but you know, like it's not you... a minor quibble, dude. It, it's just, it's like I, I think if if somebody were drawing a story set in San Francisco, they should at least do some photo reference, you know? Like I don't yeah. think that's asking too much. Yeah. This was made in 2006, and I'm pretty sure Google image search existed back then, so he yeah. could have done a little bit of research. Right, right. But yeah, but what I was gonna say was. If you walk through Golden Gate Park, like I had to check with Drew on this because I was like, maybe there's a part of the park that I haven't been to. But as far as I can tell, I don't think you can see the bridge from anywhere in the park. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So when I was looking at that scene, it didn't make it. I, I, I was confused for, for a moment. Uh, like It is, man. It's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. For... It, looking at the image, it did feel like it might have been uh, like a, a scene from Fort Mason. If 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 that's what they had taken, then I would have been like, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. But that wasn't the case. I mean, they clearly wrote it as Golden Gate Park. So yeah. I don't know what's going on, man. Yeah, apparently you can see the Golden Gate Bridge from any vantage point. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah well one one thing i will say about this comic is that the lettering is excellent man it, it's some top tier lettering todd klein obviously one of the greatest letterers in the history of american comics he's won so many eisner awards for his work you can see his talents on display in full force in this comic just from the different fonts that he uses for different situations like there's a character an eternal named droog who i guess in his life as a as a human he's he's in this uh country he's like the part of the he's a politician or part of the government of this small country that used to be part of the soviet union and yeah. whenever he speaks with his countrymen there's a different font to kind of indicate that that uh, their language, yeah. yeah. And then there's even things like uh, Iron Man's font when he comes into the scenes and and he's speaking, his his font size is just slightly larger 
than all of the other people's font and it fonts and it just reminds me or it conveys this idea that the you know the famous superhero is larger than life mm-hmm. or maybe even has just the sense of egotism and i think little details like that it's so subtle but man it i really really appreciate stuff like that it it's not really something that i think people keep accolades on very much but i think just seeing that level of attention to detail by Todd Klein I'm I'm really impressed because who who else would have thought of doing something like that right it, you don't it's a story about the eternals but so much of the story is is them trying to be normal or or trying to blend in with normal people and then you have the superhero come in and his font is bigger than everybody else's font yeah it's it's funny man i, I like that a lot nice the the other thing i was gonna add to you know just your overall assessment of it was i would happen to agree like when you proposed that question to me about how you know was there anything to this story like i really had to stop and think about it you know Mm -hmm. um I I I mentioned to you uh, earlier today when we discussed it that our, one of the channels that we watch, Cartoonist Kayfabe, actually did a review of the first issue of it, you know? And I was watching it, you know, just to try to... Uh, not inspire... Well, uh, I was watching it to try to you give gonna me ideas. You were going to crib their insights? <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to crib them, but I was trying to see if they could give me, you know, just something that I could use, right? And mm-hmm. I think they were more focused on the technicals of it, but um, on on the technical technical aspects of the making of the comic itself. But in terms of, you know, the, the story elements, I'd, I'd, I'd have to ultimately agree with you that it's something that's more focused on just the plot of what the story is. Like I'm, I do feel that there are other themes and ideas that he's working with beneath the surface, but even, even having processed it and read it, it's, it's not, it's not immediately clear to me. And at the same time, I'd also say that it's not, even even the few ideas that I feel are out there feel like they're kind of a reach, you know. Um, yeah. Or or I'm not entirely confident in in the validity of of their um, of their presence within the story. But mm-hmm. as I think about it, uh, yeah, I I think part of me wants to say that even though the Eternals was never a property that I had any kind of affection or nostalgia for. Um, yeah, for me, the plot was enough where I was invested in these characters and, and it almost felt like even if, even though this was a story that firmly roots the Eternals within the Marvel universe, this could have been, a story about characters that Neil Gaiman had just created just to tell a story. And I would have been 
pretty entertained and invested in them. I like I you know what I mean? I would have been fine yeah. with that. Sure. Um, sure. I will say that there was a grandiosity to to the story uh that that I did appreciate. It you know, um you mentioned earlier that these are characters who exist as you know more or less gods in 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 comparison to the rest of the beings within the marvel universe so Mm -hmm. you know gaiman was able to create this fusion of uh the all the all the various uh worlds that exist that he's building on right so there's all this sense of high almost high fantasy that exists within the uh the world of the eternals when they're dealing mm-hmm. with the the elements that are specific to them but then he still is able to like firmly tie it and remind us that one like this exists in the quote real world when you know when you see the characters just living their daily lives and then he he goes a step further and roots it into the into the the Marvel universe itself by yeah you know um, having Iron Man and Yellow Jacket uh, play uh, recurring parts within the comics and on top of that you know the 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 references to the events that are going on at the exact moment in time when the comics are coming out you know yeah like, in particular civil war was happening yeah exactly so those those were all elements that like just scream at you to let you know that hey this is a marvel comic yeah you yeah know? i mean there's even a, a point where iron man asks them straight up whose side are you on yeah because that was the tagline for civil war yeah like I, I, I do kind of wonder if that was, like I, no, I want to. It, it definitely feels like it was a Marvel like edict from their editorial staff, but yeah, I, I, I wonder like what Gaiman's uh like stance on that was. Like he clearly made it happen. It, it's clearly in the comic, but. Mm-hmm. You know? if, if I had to guess, I'm just purely speculating here. Yeah. I'm thinking that was his choice. You think so, huh? I think so because, and the reason why I think so is because he's a big enough name where I think if he had told Marvel, I don't want to do that, they would have been like, oh, okay, you don't have to then. Yeah. But the fact that he did do that, I I think it shows that he wanted to play in the Marvel universe. And from what I do know about his attitude towards the series... In the hardcover, there's an interview from an issue of Marvel Spotlight that came mm-hmm. out around the time of the first issue, and they were talking to him about his some of his aims for the series. And one of the things that he said was he wants he wanted it to firmly introduce reintroduce the Eternals into the Marvel universe, and he wanted it to feel you know contemporary and like it it was something that that mattered and and something that 
isn't separate from all the other stuff. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily supposed to just be this is Neil Gaiman's Eternals comic. It was supposed to be something like this is Neil Gaiman's Eternals comic that takes place firmly within the contemporary Marvel universe. That's a it's an interesting choice, you know? Like it's I feel like most writers given the opportunity uh wouldn't go that route. But well well okay, let me clarify. Most writers that, you know, exist on the same plane or or who exist on the same level as Gaiman probably wouldn't lean into that quite so much, right? Like yeah, I, guess I don't know so. about you. Like my expectation is they just want to tell a story and cuz it almost feels like product placement, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think he was okay with that. I think he I th- the impression I got from the interview was that he wanted it to be in the Marvel universe because he had already had his opportunity to tell a story where he was just doing his own thing in 1602. Yeah. Yeah. So true. he he felt like he would be doing a service to to bring these characters that are kind of forgotten and integrate them into the Marvel universe. You know, when you see them talking to Iron Man and and you know being referenced or you know referencing Civil War, that's when you really know, oh, these characters do matter because they're yeah. drawing Iron Man's attention. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I think just the main thing is I I think that if he really didn't want to do it, he could have easily said no. And I, I don't think, so I, I don't think he was forced or mandated to to do that. I, I I truly think that it was his choice. Although I could be wrong. Maybe there was an interview he did at some other point where he, he disowned it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I didn't do that much extra research. Yeah. I mean, Gaiman seems like a pretty easygoing dude. So Yeah. He ain't no prima donna from what I can tell. Exactly. Exactly. So um Yeah, I it wouldn't I'd I'd find it hard to believe that he would work on this book and throw a tantrum or anything like that. Like yeah. even even if editorial came to him, he would I believe he would be willing would to work They would have to ask him. him to do something really stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Right? Exactly. Like, dude's, dude's a chill guy, and he's a professional. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have any other thoughts on the comic? I'm ready to dive into spoilers, if you want. Sure. Let's go for it. Okay. So, from here on out... If you haven't read the story yet and you don't want it spoiled, you should go out and read it before you listen to the rest of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we are about to spoil everything, including the ending. So, you know, just to let you guys know. And f- first of all, Albert, I want to say that I think one of the big reasons why the story falls flat to me with successive readings is because of the ending. I think the ending is pretty weak. I like how the story begins. It starts off building this mystery and it there's an intrigue to it, you know? Like it it actually did draw me in and the the human aspect with Makari in his human guise as Mark Curry. Mm. It really had a the character, I don't know, there's something about the character that that made it uh 
I guess, relatable or just it was just something that grounded the narrative in something. And then once you reach a certain point in the story, he basically gets, you know, captured or knocked out or whatever. And then you're mostly following Icarus and Cersei. And then all this stuff with the Dreaming Celestial happens. And as the story gets bigger and bigger, it reaches this crescendo. And at the very end of it, it basically just ends with the promise that there's going to be more ideas, more adventures and more excitement to come. You know, like it, it ends yeah. on this note where these most of the main Eternals have reawakened. They They remember who they are. They've got their powers back. And now they're going to go out there and find the rest of their people and wake them up and restore their memories and powers as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it ends. It ends with them being excited to go do that. Yeah. And that is, I don't know. It, it, it makes the story feel like a prologue to something more. And I know that in the immediate aftermath of this, the sequel was that Charlie and Daniel Nauf series. But that's not the same, man. Like it, I think. Feels like a bait and switch. (laughs) Yeah, it was a bait and switch. If Gaiman had wanted to commit to writing an ongoing series, I think this could have been a classic. You know, like this would have just been the first chapter of a bigger story. But because that doesn't happen, it just feels like this is. I don't know. It it just it's it's flimsy, man. It it, yeah. it makes it feel like so much of the story is centered around the idea of waking these characters up and restoring their memories. And when it finally happens, they don't really do anything with it. I mean, Gaiman yeah. and, and Jr. Jr. don't really do a, much, a whole lot with that idea. It, it's it, it goes back to that point we were discussing earlier about this whole story is like product placement it's like this whole story feels like it could have just been a flashback in issue one you know like it's it's just their their backstory and if they really wanted to integrate them into the marvel universe they could have just gone in medias res and and then filled in the backstory and and this could have been summarized but to make this the entire focal point it's like you you go on this journey with the characters, this journey of awakening, and at the end of it, I guess you see them all awaken, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they awaken, and you you're immediately presented with the premise that this is only the beginning of it. You know, like it it's yeah. not like they reached the end of their journey. The end of their journey was not their awakening. It's only the beginning of their journey. Yeah. And you don't get anything that comes after the beginning. So it, yeah. it just makes it feel a little bit unsatisfying, you know? I get like, that. I'll, I'll say that that makes it that makes it um, less interesting to me as someone who's reading this for the, the fourth time. Yeah. Because you know I, how it ends, which is there is no ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that 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 hurts, man. And I, a, I don't blame Gaiman for that. I, yeah, it's just one of those things where, again, he his goal was to bring them back into the Marvel universe, and he did that. Yeah, to a limited extent, it it didn't last long because the people that came after him clearly weren't as good as him. Yeah, yeah. So it 
in a way, it just makes it a little bit tragic or sad that he did all this work. And at the end of the day, it took over another 10 years to have the Eternals come back for real. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Like, I hadn't thought about it in those terms until you mentioned it. But there are a lot of plot points that you could tell that they were seeding uh, by the end of the story, you know, that they just... You know, not having read the succeeding series, as far as I can tell, there's just no real conclusion, right? So yeah. at the end of the series, the Dreaming Celestial basically makes a deal with the Eternals saying that I'm not going to destroy the world right now. I will continue to observe humanity. And when I deem it time, then I will make, cast my judgment, right? Mm-hmm. So, one, you're just left with the Dreaming Celestial just hanging out in Golden Gate Park. Yep. That's literally where that ends for him. Is A massive giant standing in Golden Gate Park. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, then, the funny thing is, is that right around this era was the time when the X-Men moved to San Francisco. Yeah. So, <laughs> in those comics, you actually see a lot more of the Dreaming Celestial. Maybe not so much in in terms of doing anything in the stories, but whenever they he's just part of go the anywhere, he's always in the background, you know, and, and they, they do talk about him and, and mention him. He's a source of potential concern. And in fact, what I think actually ends up happening is like, I think several Did years. Did Colossus beat him up? <laughs> is that how they beat him? Did he just like punch a celestial? No, man. It wasn't Colossus. Wolverine flew into his eye and then sliced him apart from the inside out. Was it Deadpool? Did Deadpool shoot him? Maggot. One of Maggot's maggots <laughs> ate him. <laughs> they got Marrow, and she used her bones to stab the Celestial to death. <laughs> What were you gonna say? How how did how do you think it ended with the Dreaming Celestial? From what I remember, I think there was a random spin-off X-Men comic where he ended up getting destroyed. So it was a pretty ignominious end to something that could have been or should have been a cosmic threat. Yeah. Yeah. To it have was, him, it was a pretty random X-Men comic. To have him killed off in like a miniseries or something. <laughs> Yeah. Or I don't even know was it a miniseries or just like a random issue or something? It I think it was a random issue of Age of Apocalypse or something. Okay, see like even a miniseries at least it would make it the focal point of the story, but if it's just a random issue in in some ongoing story, that is yeah, the ignominious is a great word for it. That's that's just for something that's supposed to be a threat of that level, that's a pretty nothing burger ending. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and so in addition to that, you have other like plot elements that they seed which so the 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 ongoing conflict between the Eternals and the uh Deviance. Deviance. I mean, that's still. There was no real resolution to that. Right. Like when the series ends, uh, on in the last issue, 
the deviants bring their army to them and you know they're like cowards come out <laughs> yep. and face us <laughs> i did love that scene though yeah i love that scene too <laughs> i i i chuckled i chuckled quite a bit i enjoyed but, it a lot but um you know uh they 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 threatened to you know rain hell upon the the city where the eternals live and they have like this quick battle and it it resolves with them in stalemate but you know the deviants are still out there and they're they still continue to threaten the existence of the eternals and and they so much as say that we'll be back you know yeah and you don't you haven't seen the last of us (laughs) And yeah, you don't get that conclusion either, you know. So it really does feel like they uh, had a lot of things that they were just planting uh, mm-hmm. in preparation for whoever to pick up and run with in that next series. And I, I just don't think the Noffs were necessarily the guys to pull that off. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Like even. Even at the time, I, I don't think they were especially big writers uh, in the Marvel stable. Like, I, th- I want to say that they worked on that one Iron Man comic uh, that Director followed... Director of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Was it Director of S.H.I.E.L.D.? It, I, I know it followed up uh, Extremis. I think it yeah. followed Extremis. Yeah, I remember that run. Yeah, it was pretty uneventful yeah forgettable. when i say i remember it i mean i remember that it happened but i, I yeah. couldn't tell you anything that yeah that, uh, occurred within the story yeah 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 so there was a lot of things where you're right where, where for gaiman to set this up to be their lord of the rings or whatever you know, the, a, a Lord of the Rings in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, only to have it fizzle out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a couple of issues later with, uh, you know, fill a fill-in writer or whatever. It's, uh, yeah, I guess it taints, it does kind of hurt the overall, like, perception of the story, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even... Even a couple of plot elements involving the Eternals themselves feel like they get left by the wayside. Like the character Droog, he's built up as the this kind of antagonist, even though he's one of the Eternals. He's kind of the conniving, cunning, selfish one. Like the, I don't know, like the star scream of the group, I guess. Yeah. He's taken over a country. And yeah. in yeah. working with the Eternals, he made a deal with them that he would help them but only if he was allowed to remain the leader of this country. Yeah. So he still yeah. exists out there. Yeah, and the implication is that he could be a threat in the future. Yeah. And on a more personal level, you have Cersei, who is now an awakened Eternal, but she decides to forsake that existence mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. just continue to be herself, to, mm-hmm. to live as, you know... A party planner a party planner and Makari who has, you know, his own existential crisis where he, he now exists as this godlike being, but 
he remembers what it was like to be a normal guy and what it means to give that up, you know? Yeah. And yeah, that Dana. Dana has a young son. Yeah. She she carries her son with her even after she becomes she awakens and you know brings her son to the battle scene where they f- face the dreaming celestial. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and then brings her son back to their home city after everything's over and and Zuras the leader is like what why why are you still attached to this thing you know like that Yeah. This this human's going to die within a short amount of time while you still live so what's the point and and she's like you brought your dog here <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> that made me laugh that that did too i i did i laughed at that too but she did i i forget what happens like just a few moments after that i mean like it i don't know if that was like an accident or like uh, unintentional but she did i remember she did mention in a in in just a couple of scenes later that you know she has love for this child you know yeah you yeah. know it it wasn't it was more than just a pet to her yeah exactly <laughs> is, is what I'm, I'm getting at like i forget yeah. what the exact line was but it it clarified that she felt for this child like actual That's love. Still her son. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I thought, you know, those those smaller elements uh were really interesting and had we been able to explore that further, that would have that you're you're totally right. That could have been substantially more satisfying uh as a reading experience. Maybe I'll give the Knopf uh, comics a try, but I, I kind of doubt that they, they're going to hit any sweet spots. Yeah, I know I've found some of those issues in quarter bins at some point in the past, but I ended up reading the first couple issues that I got, and I, uh-huh. I didn't really think too much of them, so yeah, uh, I, I, pretty, I think I got rid of them, either that or they're just in, in a yeah. box full of the other stuff that I plan to get rid of at some point, I never bothered trying to get the rest of it because it just didn't interest me. Yeah. The I did also... Cool, though. Daniel Acuna. Yeah. I did want to mention that one of the things that I did like about the series was the revelation of who was behind it all. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so, you know, uh, over the course of the series, you have this mystery of what happened to the Eternals, like where, why is there this gap in time? Uh, and it's revealed that one of the other Eternals that lived among them, uh, an Eternal by the name of Sprite, who looks like a, a like a ten year old kid, but he's an Eternal like the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's just going to look like a ten year old kid forever. And yeah. basically, what ends up happening is over the millions of years that they exist together in their small uh, unit, you know, there are only a hundred community. Yeah. There are only a hundred of them in existence. I'm not even sure what the rules on that are. Like, I don't know if they can actually have kids. Can they? I don't think they can. Right. I don't believe so. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 
as a people exist as a group of 100. And it's continuously just 100. Yeah, and it's always yeah. the same uh, individuals. Yeah. Like they don't they don't die and they don't get. Uh, yeah. They don't procreate with people. each other. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. So they they just kind of exist through the world, experiencing things. And uh, this one, this one eternal by the name of Sprite, lives. Mm. Uh, just as long as them but he doesn't age and it's revealed it's revealed in flashback he tells this story of how he watches Cersei as she as she as she gets into relationships eventually with every male (laughs) you know well, I, I'd probably even go so far as to say, like, if I was to to take a guess, with every adult uh, uh, eternal in their community, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he he watches her uh, get into these sexual or romantic relationships with other eternals within his within their community, and he tells a story of how. He once approaches her, and she just kind of laughs at him at, like he's a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. And she basically says, "I can't. You can't. I, I'll, I'll, I'll probably tell this in the most sanitized way possible." But no, no, no! Don't sanitize your mouth, man. <laughs> just, just be. We, we want the full Albert experience on this show, dude. If you're gonna um, sanitize it, at least use your 1920s Chicago gangster voice. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that, but I, I'll <laughs> I'll lean into it then. She basically says to this child, "Me and you, you can't ride the bone train because you got to be this tall to ride the ride." You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I don't know what you mean. Can you uh, elaborate a bit, Albert? <laughs> She's basically saying that they can't fornicate with each other because. He is a child, and she is a full-grown woman with full-grown woman wants and needs, and that his slender child body is just incapable of satiating her lust. How is that? How is that? He can't hump the Joneses out of her. Is that better? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, I gotta catch my breath. <laughs> oh man. So, so in the scene, she just kind of laughs at him, but in in his internal narration, you can hear Sprite, and he's just seething at the thought of this because he's gonna be ten for for all eternity, which means. He's never going to be able to know the touch of a woman. Yeah. You know? So he's pissed. Royally pissed. Exactly. Exactly. So it's revealed that as a part of his plan, he tricks the other Eternals into uh, attacking the Dreaming Celestial. And by attacking the Dreaming Celestial, he's able to... Uh, I guess manipulate 
uh, loopholes or or weaknesses that take effect, and he's able to uh, use the Dreaming Celestial to warp reality and uh and i'm not entirely clear like how it how it all plays out but he turns everyone not human but he he turns mortal he gives them mortality okay so he does make them mortal right i I think i think that was what he was aiming to do because he wanted to make himself mortal so he could yeah he wanted to be able to age and as you said know the touch of a woman yeah yeah but i guess the part that confused me was like how come when they kill icarus he he comes back as like he doesn't die like even even so there's a scene earlier on in the book where they were like torturing him or like yeah. just trying all the different ways to kill him but he just yeah. wouldn't die even though yeah. he was technically as far as my understanding goes under the same spell as the rest of them yeah that, that's a good point I, I wasn't super clear on that either i mean i i understood sprites goal, yeah yeah and i i knew that he wanted to he he tried to make them all forget so maybe it were, was when they forgot who they were. Maybe that's when they were allowed to be mortal. But once they remembered, it it uh, activated it their nullified. powers again. But that's the thing. He remembers. Yeah, and he was still mortal. So yeah, I, yeah there's there's a weird contradiction there. I I, I don't I, I don't know how to explain that. And okay, it wasn't super clear to me in the story either. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I remember reading that and it was it was just something where I just had to just kind of shrug and just keep going. Yeah. But it was it was never abundantly clear to me exactly how that worked. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I cannot explain it either. Okay. Maybe okay. maybe somebody who has an actual PhD in comics can <laughs> explain it to us. <laughs> Well, I was just going to check the Wikipedia and maybe maybe the Wikipedia would have some sort of explanation for that. But maybe I'll update the Wikipedia page and say that the story was confusing. That works too. That works too. <laughs> <laughs> but um one of my favorite scenes in it is actually towards the end when all the Eternals are awakened and Zurus Zerus, so it's a scene where all the deviants are about to storm Olympia, and you know, uh, Makari is in the middle of uh, negotiating with the deviants, trying to de escalate the situation. And Zerus mm-hmm. is like the leader of all of them, right? Mm-hmm. And he should be there for, for this whole thing, but he just goes, Oh, I got something to take care of, and he just like dips out of there, right? Yeah. And then later on you see Sprite, he's on a bus just riding around uh you know trying to be inconspicuous. Mm-hmm. Um and then Zura shows up and they have this conversation and it's 
it's a pretty like like crushing back and forth for like i don't know how how you felt about it but reading that it, there was something about it that was like oh man this is uh this is severe you know yeah Zerus, you know he's the leader of the eternals and he's sitting here with sprite and sprite committed this crime against them right so yeah. sprite's sitting there and he's talking with Zerus, and he's saying well what are you gonna do you if you take me back like there's no way that you're ever gonna trust me again you know because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i've already committed my crime against you what are you gonna do with me and you know he's he's still just treating this like a game right and Zerus doesn't say anything, but it becomes clear to the both of them what has to be done. And yep. and Sprite just kind of panics for a second, just kind of, he starts looking for an out. He says, I'll scream, I'll, I'll tell everybody on the bus that you tried to touch me, uh, you know, just, just to do anything, just to get him to stop, just doing to get him to not do what he ultimately is going to have to do. And Zerus... Mm-hmm. You know, he just he just basically lets him know, like, you know, there's no other way that this can end, you know? Yep, we're coming to the end of the line. Yeah, and he just... And Sprite just accepts his fate. And you, as a reader, I remember the first time reading this, you're just like, I, I'm not really quite sure what's he going to do. So Zerus and Sprite, like, they hug each other for a second, and you're like, oh, okay. And then... There's just this huge crack, <laughs> and you yep. realize that he just broke his neck. <laughs> yeah, and he broke a kid's neck. Yeah, and the scene ends with Zurus leaving, and uh, Sprite's body is just there in on this bus, and you know they find him, and he's just straight dead. Yeah, straight dead, homie. <laughs> uh. Did you enjoy that because it was a full-grown man killing a kid? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I generally thought that that drama was like some of the most. It was some of the most powerful stuff in it, you know. Yeah, and yeah, the other. I, I agree that Sprite's role in the story was one of the most interesting and yeah. and and engaging elements of it. Yeah. Uh, and the the other scene, uh, thing about that ending that jumped out at me was, so there's this moment before Zorus kills him. Uh, so so over the course of the entire series, he's constantly talking about how he's like, I'm not a kid, I'm millions of years old, blah blah blah, right? He's just mm-hmm. constantly trying to prove to everyone that he's he's not a child. You know, yeah. and then this final conversation happens between the two of them, and when they come to the conclusion that uh, Zurus is gonna have to kill him because there's no other penalty for what he's done to the Eternals, um, Sprite says to him, he goes, "But I'm just a kid," and Zurus looks at him and goes, "You haven't been a kid for millions of years." You know, yep. there was something yep. about that where like. The, the whole time he just wanted to be acknowledged as an adult and the one time he tries to play the kid card he ain't getting none of that yeah 
Yeah, there there's definitely something harsh about that. The the dialogue is so good in in that scene. Yeah. Even at the the very end um a couple panels after that happens Zuras tells him that journey's end and we're coming to the end of the line. Yeah. Sprite just looks at him and he says, "I'm not sorry. Not really." You know. Yeah. <laughs> but he still accepts his fate, you know. He he yeah. knows what has to be done. Like the only way that this can end is with his death and he yeah. can't there's nowhere for him to run. You know, it's yeah. it's over. But and he's still not sorry. Yeah. And I was going to say like I don't know how the Eternals movies are going to play out, but man, if if there's if at some point they put that scene in one of the movies, uh, you know, assuming that Eternals gets sequels like that that is the one scene that i would want to see <laughs> you know play out um the interesting one of the interesting details i noticed about the movie is that there is no zuras that's true you're right now that you mention it i i, I didn't realize it till just now yeah apparently uh, it seems like ajak is is gonna be their leader the character played by salma hayek Oh, I didn't realize she was Ajax. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So I I don't know if maybe they'll introduce Zeras in a future film. Uh, yeah. It could be one of those things where it's like the Thor movies where we ain't seen Balder or the Enchantress. You know, yeah. these major characters for whatever reason yeah. are left out. I mean, who knows, I, man? Uh, I'm not against. Uh, it, the fact of the matter is, I, th- I I think I'd be okay with it if if the spirit of the scene was in the was was portrayed right. So it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to be Zurus, and it doesn't yeah it doesn't necessarily have to be Zurus uh, who does it as long as the the spirit of the scene is in there right. Mm-hmm. And you know back to the topic of uh, just missed upper opportunities or whatever um i i do (laughs) there was something about the idea of this the villain being a kid where even though sprite dies at the end of this i was like man that 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 was something that i had never seen before not not like that anyways you know just yeah so it's hard to think of any big two superhero comics where one of the main characters kills a kid. Yeah. Or well, I was gonna see where where the villain is a kid. Yeah, that too. You that know? too. It's it's. I think it's not done very often because it's hard to pull off. But you know, I I I think it's good for the sake of variety. You know, uh, just to have. All sorts of different villains. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. In the movie, I noticed that Sprite is a little girl as opposed to a little boy. Yeah. I I do think, from what I've seen of the trailer, uh, she seems like a good fit for the role. Like, I, I don't really have a... Like, I mean, she's she's basically the character, you know? 
Yeah. So I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't really have an issue with that. Were there Wait, you, any don't, other... you don't think that they're ruining the country by casting her as a girl? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not my Eternals, okay? <laughs> this is not my Eternals. Man, those people never even knew who the Eternals were. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do they even know who Sprite is? Do Probably they? not. Probably not. Not at all. Not in the slightest. Were there any other scenes or moments that uh, jumped out at you, Drew? One scene, one of the lines that's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorites in the whole story is this moment when near the end, Iron Man is talking to Zuras and he tries to get him to register because, you know, because of the Civil War, there's the Superhuman Registration Act. And he's like, you have to register. Whose side are you on? And Zuras replies to Iron Man, if you saw two groups of children arguing over which of them could play in some waste ground, would you choose sides? <laughs> and that's how the issue ends. Like, I thought that was a really good ending for an issue you know i think that's how issue six ends it's, it's just zoras giving iron man the business in a verbal manner you know like yeah he, like there, there's no real comeback that I, iron man can say to that line you know like right it's yeah all iron man can the only response to that is to hang your head and go home <laughs> uh Did you think that there was any commentary or any other, I don't know, symbolism or just ideas in this story that stood out or even give you something to consider? Well, I did mention earlier that I I tried to get inspiration from uh, the cartoonist kayfabe video. And one of the things that I did... Uh, notice or one of the uh, observations that they made was about how the story was about mythology and the power of storytelling and mm -hmm. um i i'm still struggling to come up with like a concrete thesis based on that i yeah. I, I don't i can't really i couldn't really say what it has to say about those things if they are in it. Um, but there was a scene at the end that, that did kind of stir something in me when I was uh, contemplating uh, that particular thought, which was the start of issue seven starts with the dreaming celestial just standing in Golden Gate Park and tourists are becoming becoming attracted to it, right? Because it's, it's a spectacle. It's a spectacle. It's out of this world. It's it's un it's nothing that anyone's ever seen before. So um the scene is these tourists come and they're just gawking at the dreaming celestial in the park. And they they're not even really 
in awe of this thing. Like this thing is a being that was there, you know, that seeded life in the universe before life was even a thing. It's older than the oldest thing that they could even like imagine. And these Mm -hmm. people are looking at it and they can only think this thing is made out of gold. Is it worth anything? (laughs) And they're just, you know, they're just making. They're kind of just enamored with the superficial aspect, and exactly. there isn't really a sense. Exactly. You you would think that in reality, if you saw something like that, you would be injected with a sense of awe and wonder. Yeah. Because I would of something crap my that pants. can just. Yeah, exactly. You should be <laughs> crapping your pants. Like, yeah. How can something like this possibly exist? You know, like yeah. this. This is something that shows that humans are are just bugs in in this world yeah exactly it's something that would cause you to have an existential crisis right because yeah uh, again celeste like presuming that they know about the celestials the same things that we as the reader know about them um these celestials are you know one it's it's a definite sign of extraterrestrial life which in and of itself should be pretty shocking but Two, it's 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 not just any extraterrestrial life. It's like the things that were there at the conception of all life, right? Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that should make anyone just walk away with, you know, feelings of inag- inadequacy and just despair, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It, and all these people can think are... Oh, look how big it is. Oh, it's made of gold. Do you think it's worth anything? And the panel ends with this kid uh, looking at it, and he's talking about how it's a, it looks like a robot, but he says he likes his robot better because his robot transforms. Yeah, this you know? kid is holding a toy robot. Yeah, and... It's not even Optimus Prime, which is another thing about John Romita Jr.'s art that I think undersells the moment because he just draws the kid holding a generic doll. Yeah. It, it I think it really undercut the moment. It just makes it... It's just one of those details, man, where if he had taken the time to even draw a robot... It doesn't have to be Optimus Prime, but just some robot that looked like it could transform into a truck, that would have made sense, but... Because there was nothing to the toy that he drew that made it look like it could transform at all. Uh-huh. It just made it look dissonant, you know, like the picture was dissonant with the with the word balloon. With the words. Yeah. 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 No, I I get that. But there was something about that entire series of events when I was thinking about it where and again, this is me still just kind of forming my opinions, but, you know, if we look at the power of mythology and just where we are today, like, it it makes me wonder if he's trying to say something about us and just, you know... The lack of wonder and appreciation yeah, exactly. we have for things that are great. Yeah, right? Like, mm-hmm. we've... How we've replaced our 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 storytelling and our imagination for i guess superficiality and commercial commercialism yeah like i 
I'm not entirely sure that that's what he was saying. Like, and and I'd still have to think on it some more. But, um, and and like I can't even say that there are more scenes that would point to that throughout the book because that that one moment in particular jumped out at me. But that was kind of the only one moment in and of mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. No, that that's a good point. That that's still something, you know. It's still something to to think about and maybe re-examine this the story to to see if that theme crops up in in anything else. I had a couple of ideas in terms of subtext in the story, and and one of them is a little bit more half-formed than the other. So. Uh-huh. Let, let me share the the half formed thought with you first to see if if uh, you have any thing to, anything to say about it to maybe make it a full thought. <laughs> but <laughs> I was wondering if you could see this story as a bit of a commentary on fanboyism and just the idea of not growing up because Sprite is this eternal kid, right? He was even, there's even a little scene where he explains that he was the inspiration for Peter Pan, Mm. you know, like Sprite's the eternal kid and he got upset that he could never grow up and have sex because he was this, you know, horny little dude. Yeah. He just didn't have the, you know, the functional equipment like an adult would. (laughs) And and it, it just makes me wonder, is this supposed to be some kind of commentary on, on fanboys and how fanboys don't go don't grow up and they they want something that they can't have but they're just like stuck on these childish things uh that's a real interesting thought cuz cuz you're right like that that's definitely it some form of that is definitely present in this story right but mm-hmm. I don't I, I guess where I've where I'm finding it hard to make a connection like you is like like I don't know if it's something that I would directly connect to fanboyism or you know just the fan base in general. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I I I'd have to think on that some more because that's that's a tough one to 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 grasp uh yeah and and i'm not even i'm not even convinced that that's there either because on the other hand if you think about it uh sprite he's the he's the only character in there that consciously wanted to grow up you know he literally wanted to grow up he wanted to not be a kid anymore yeah so uh, yeah i don't even know if my my idea holds any weight that's why i said it was a really half-formed thought yeah yeah uh well I guess I guess Mark Mark Curry Macari mm-hmm. was another character who had a similar uh epiphany That's where yeah. what you know towards the end he talks about how he remembers what it was like to be a, a nurse working in a hospital work, uh, working uh, 30 hour work weeks and uh, or 30 hour work days as he put it and uh you know 
what it was like to have a girlfriend and what it was like to, you know, sleep in and just do normal things. But uh, now that he has this opportunity to be above it all, he he doesn't even know if that's really what he wants, you know? Like, mm-hmm. he, there's a part of him that wants this the simplicity of a normal life. And he talks about how now they're going to go on this journey to awaken all the other uh, sleeping Eternals. But could he really do that to them? Mm, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm. That's a good point. So may, maybe it's not so much about fanboyism specifically. Maybe it's more about growing up or or moving on to different stages in life. Yeah, actually. Now that you mention it, like, Cersei is another example of that, you know, but she takes the opposite track. Yeah. Given the opportunity to join the Eternals, she turns her back on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so I guess those three characters all kind of display the the theme of growing up in a different way, like, especially yeah. in terms of, like, how much they want to grow up and, yeah. you know, where, where that journey of life is taking them Mm -hmm. yeah that that does add a little bit more thought to the story i think a little bit more depth to the story yeah my other thought in terms of a theme in the story is and i this is another one where i would want to ask you to see what you think about it but i was wondering do you think that this is another one of Gaiman's stories about stories? Would you say that this is a metafictional commentary on corporate cape comics and the cyclical nature of it? You know, where you take an old property, you polish it up, you try to get it going again until no one wants it anymore. And then after a while, people have forgotten about it. You begin that whole cycle again. Mm. I really feel like there's there's bones for something like that there. I just, I just, I just feel like it needs more exploring in order for us to, to put it together, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause we mentioned before, um, that there, there are different bits, beats to the story that explore the idea of mythology uh in in its various forms right yeah and and there's something about that to that idea that you know stories are kind of foundational to to the growth of societies you know mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 the connective tissue of of what what makes societies happen uh it's it's what it's what like shared experiences are built upon, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, things that begin as history become legendary over time. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And um. And yeah, and it makes me wonder, like, about something like the Dreaming Celestial and what its role in all that is, and. Uh, 
even the stuff with the deviants at the end where they when they came to to battle uh you know to try to take over uh olympia there's there's this scene where um their leader i, I forget what his name was cag or something like that crag something know. with the k i can't remember either yeah but there's a scene where you know he's he's talking to all his soldiers and they're talking about um you know how they're going to kill Makari or whatever. But the thing that stops them is the fact that uh, there's, you know, their legend tells them that Makari is directly connected to the dreaming celestial, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and they walk away with that for now. And I I think if they had had a chance to, if game, you know, it's, it's another missed opportunity but if Gaiman had continued the series and had been able to explore that further the idea of just how the nugget of this one experience becomes the foundational uh like tentpole for their stories Mm -hmm. moving forward and how it affects their society yeah like that could have been something interesting to see but unfortunately we never get the conclusion to that story so yeah it's left. just a little a little half-baked yeah like i guess that's why it's hard for us to make uh concrete statements about what the comic is or isn't about since so much of it feels like it never it's really got something yeah finalized exactly yeah, yeah, like there are so many hints at deeper ideas, but I, I can't, for some reason, I I just can't seem to flesh them out like how we do when we talk about other yeah. comics sometimes. Totally. It it compared to most other comics that we've read, like I definitely feel like I'm having a harder time picking apart this story for whatever reason. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 yet it's not a bad comic by any means. It it's it's good. Like I would say it it's it's still a good comic. There's just something about it where I think it could have been better. You know, like I hate to say it like that, but yeah, it, it just feels like if if there had been more, you know, like if there had been if if Gaiman had actually continued the story even though i know that this is all he wanted to do like if if he had wanted to it had it was originally supposed to be a six issue story and he wanted to do a little bit more so it was seven but i'm sure if he wanted to do even more issues marvel would have been thrilled with that but this was the story that he was satisfied telling so i i just have to accept that this is all that there is and all all that we're Mm. getting it yeah. just feels like there there are ideas that could have been explored more because they're they're brought up within the context of this miniseries, but it really is just the ideas brought up, but it's it's not really enough for us to sink our teeth into it and and explore it to to a really deep degree. Yeah. Yeah. Even something like the Dreaming Celestial, I think kind of harkens back to Sandman, you know, with the dreaming, 
Like yeah. for some reason, Neil Gaiman seems to like this idea of of, of dreaming because I, I think he is, like we were saying earlier, a really big, he has a really big interest in the power of storytelling and mythology. So maybe in some sense, there is a theme of, or maybe not a theme, but just this exploration of the concept of mythology and stories over time and how how stories and people evolve over time maybe that's what the eternals represent where over time they they all they have their fundamental characteristics but mm-hmm. over time because they're so long lived within the story maybe their stories continue to evolve and on a real world level with so much time passing in between these actual comics, their stories continue to, to change and adapt with whatever the current climate or current continuity is, you know, mm-hmm. even up to today when we have the movie coming out and Marvel's current series basically takes the Eternals and, and puts them into a new place again like it, it doesn't ignore the game and stuff or the stuff before but it it fits all of it into a context where it makes sense that those things happened but they're going in a different direction at this point in time mm. yeah that's that's it's really interesting that you bring that up like listening to you talk about it it just it did make me think of something which was these characters okay let's let's take all the information that you know you've uh given us since the beginning of this uh podcast mm-hmm. so you know if we take the idea of like um that that chariots of fire story where it's chariots of of the gods Oh, Chariots of the God, sorry. Yeah. Where you ha- have uh, the Eternals who exist and have this story from their perspective. And they come down and they affect our world. And then we look at it from the perspective of the people and their society that were impacted by the eternals right Mm -hmm. you can almost see two diverging paths taking place and just how those stories went in these different directions just based on these uh divergent perspectives right yeah so it would be a pretty interesting exercise It'd be, yeah, it, it'd be a, a really interesting exercise if they were, if Gaiman was trying to tell a story about stories in the sense that, you know, it's about how the Eternals who exist throughout, who who are going to exist throughout all time, are going to be able to tell their story relative or or juxtaposed against how the rest of us see our story you know in Mm -hmm. relation to them Mm -hmm. and just and and that's an 
that's a pretty, I guess, almost meta slash crazy way to look at <laughs> stories, you know? Yeah. Just, it's almost it's almost too big for me to, to like wrap my head around, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like I couldn't, I that. yeah. But that's, that's a, that'd be a pretty monumental task. And seeing as how we never got the end to that story, it's, it, it it's the story that we never got. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I don't even know if that's what Gaiman was trying to do, but by not getting that, we'll we'll uh, I mean we'll definitely never know, but it it just kind of leaves us hanging too. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, presuming that he wanted to tell a story about storytelling, that would have been it would have been crazy really multi. It would have been a grand, crazy multi-perspective approach to deconstructing stories as they happen and as they are as they happened in in the past tense and as they are happening yeah you know yeah if he had done that and explored that idea in the way that you described this could have been the marvel sandman <laughs> yeah yeah right yep but, but alas <laughs> alas Yes. Yeah. Ooh. That uh I felt I feel like my head collapsed a little on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I used more brain cells in this episode than all 100 episodes combined before this one. <laughs> and just so you guys know, that's where we're going moving forward. Uh we're just going to try to make everybody have existential crises <laughs> the, in the next hundred episodes that is our approach is we're just gonna we're gonna give you all seizures <laughs> so albert at the end of all this do you have any recommendations for people who might have read this eternal story and enjoyed it or you know maybe whether whether or not they liked it would you do you have any recommendations for them so this okay i'm gonna put this out here and it's not really a recommendation because if i had to say i i haven't read it so it's not something that i can in good faith recommend but it's something where by looking at it, I can see the similarities to to enough similarities to Eternals where I'm pretty confident that uh that it would explore a lot of similar ideas. Uh, so you know, pr- uh, assuming that you, as the reader, want to stay in that zone and continue to experience something on a similar level. I, I do think this work of fiction would uh, I'll permit you to do that. But um, by looking at the elements that are present in Eternals, I was thinking American Gods, which is also by Neil Gaiman, is uh, based on my understanding of it, 
I, I think it has things that are in common with the Eternals. Um, I'm not entirely sure what like the specific plot of the story is or this uh, of the book is, but it's a prose novel, and it's my understanding is it's about uh, I want to say that it's about it, it's kind of what you were saying about the Eternals, where it's people who just seem like your run-of-the-mill ordinary individuals, but slowly becoming awakened to the reality of this other world, of this yeah. other existence, you know? Yeah, I, I've actually read that novel. I read it quite a few years ago, uh-huh. so my memory of it isn't super sharp. But I, I definitely can see the... Uh, similarities it it's an exploration of a lot of uh not just fantasy but i guess mythology like like ancient mythology and the those those the the gods of of mythology um like odin is a is a big character in there and and these different gods get reincarnated over time it's sort of a like the great american novel where the protagonist is this guy who who uh was convicted of some crime and at the beginning of the story he's released from prison and he he travels across the country he travels across america and as he travels he meets these different gods who are i i can't remember if they have full knowledge of of their own powers and whatnot, but he he meets these reincarnated gods and other uh, fantasy creatures and just goes on this journey to, to I think to figure out how his how his wife was killed while he was in prison. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely explores mythology, explores storytelling. I, th- I think. Mm-hmm. That would be a good a recommendation. I know they made a TV show based on this novel. I've never watched the show. Yeah. have no idea how the show is. There's also a comic book adaptation that Dark Horse Comics put out. Yeah. That that could be a, another thing worth seeking out if, if you're not in the mood to just read the original prose novel. Yeah. I know that the novel got a lot of uh praise and won a bunch of uh, awards and stuff it's something that's always been on on my list to read but you know we're just constantly reading so it's it's a matter of making the time for it (laughs) yeah 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 well if you want to borrow my copy i still have my my paperback nice i may take you up on that Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm Another recommendation that I thought did did something similar to what Gaiman was doing with Eternals was Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. I believe uh, I believe we've mentioned it several times. Uh, I believe it's on in the top twenty five Marvel comics of all time. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You know, if the if the experts have mentioned it, then <laughs> it must be worth reading. 
Yes, I, but, I agree. I agree. I trust but, the experts. <laughs> but this is a, a comic that, like the Eternals, was based on uh, an idea or properties that <clears throat> that Jack Kirby created, and it contemporizes them for modern audiences you know and and it's it's a again another example of kirby doing uh a race of mysterious peoples uh and 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 doing world building and uh and and just grand scale storytelling you know Mm -hmm. so yeah uh, it's, it's yeah Jenkins and Lee doing their take on that. Yeah. You got anything, Drew? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got the obvious ones. Like if you if you like Neil Gaiman comics, you could check out 1602. If, if you want to check out his other Marvel comic, if you want his best comic, it's got to be Sandman. Yeah. But if you just want something that'll be smaller or you know, easier to digest. Dark Horse has put out a bunch of short story collections of his work. Though those are pretty much all worth reading. I've read a bunch of them. And yeah, like you were saying, if if you like his novels, then you could check out American Gods. Another one of his I like is Neverwhere, and I I, I like Neverwhere because I think. There's a small similarity, I think, or maybe a thread that that I could uh, tie in with Eternals because Neverwhere is also about an awakening of sorts where it's in Neverwhere, there's it's basically like a, a normal uh, office worker dude, drone type of dude, ends up discovering this entire other world underground. So he, he discovers it almost like a like a dark adult version of Alice in Wonderland. So I think it's it's got that journey of awakening, you know, where he's kind of there's a little bit of a similarity between that main character and Makari from Eternals where they they're discovering this world that is exciting but also dangerous and they're not sure if it's worth dealing with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's something that, that, uh, ha- that they both have in common. And there's also a comic book adaptation of Neverwhere as well. I gave, I kind of gave John Romita Jr. a hard time earlier. So <laughs> <laughs> even though I'm not generally a fan of his work, I'm not a hater either. So right. <laughs> I'll point you guys to, to Daredevil, Man Without Fear. Wolverine, Enemy of the State. And he also did this Punisher Batman one-shot crossover issue back in the 90s. Like Those are probably my favorite. They're peak JR John Jr. Romita Jr. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, those are my favorites of his work. So, yeah, check those out. I, I would recommend them. I, I, I don't want to hate on John Romita Jr. I'm just not, I'm just <laughs> don't not a give big me fan a of reason. his stuff, <laughs> don't give me a reason john romita jr <laughs> yeah. don't do it i have the high ground <laughs> obviously for eternals comics even though we haven't read the kirby run 
that's I'm sure that's worth checking out. I, I want to check it out at some point. Yeah. But I would also highly recommend the current ongoing series by Kieran Gillen and Isad Ribich. The first trade paperback collection is out, and it's still a currently ongoing series. It just began in, I think, in January of this year. So it's still new. I would say this Eternal series is the best introduction to the Eternals. It It's... I mean, Asad Ribic, he's he's an amazing artist. You get the grand scale of his work uh, or the grand scale of the visuals depicted in his work. And Kieran Gillen is a very good writer, too. This story, this series, it's probably I've only read the first trade paperback, but I would say of all the ongoing current Marvel books, it's probably the one that I like the most, especially since. The Ta-Nehisi Coates stuff is done. Like he's finished with his Black Panther and his Captain America. Those are over. And uh, Rainbow Rowell's Runaways got canceled, I think. So, like most of my favorite Marvel books of the moment have have ended, and now uh, it's it's got to be Eternals, probably near the top, if not at the top for me. It just to describe the premise real briefly. It it's a really good introduction to to the concept, probably something that's more engaging immediately right off the bat compared to the to the game in one. But this story is about how the Eternals deal with what it means to to be mortal. I mean, immortal or, you know, to never die, basically, because even in, in the game in series, right, like there's a scene where we see what happens when Icarus quote-unquote dies he just basically gets rebuilt in a new body and wakes up in their base uh in another city in the in the south pole or whatever so the kieran gill and the sad ribich eternals takes those ideas of the eternals that are central to to their mythology of, of why they're so long lived and explores what it is that allows them to to live so long uh, there's a mechanism behind it, like something within the planet itself that that lets them have this eternal life. But it, the story also deals with the war that they're waging against uh, the deviants and also a bigger threat that appears. And I, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because it it happens in the in the first issue, but it it basically starts with. Zuras getting assassinated and they try to figure out who did it and it turns out it's Thanos. So uh yeah, it's, it's definitely shaping up to be a, a big epic story. The end of the first trade has a a crazy good cliffhanger that I won't spoil here, but it's something that just makes makes me want to read even more of it. I like it a lot and it, it's Hickman influence cuz it's even got those data pages. Perfect. Yeah charts and graphs and things it, it's it's a lot of fun man i would definitely recommend it nice i yeah. uh i wasn't able to read it for this uh for our episode tonight because it's not on hoopla but you know i uh after listening to you and what you had to say uh on, on in our conversation before the podcast i i'm i'm definitely it's piqued my curiosity you know yeah yeah something to check out i actually borrowed it from the library the physical copy Mm -hmm. i 
when I when it came out, I asked the library to buy it, and I immediately placed a hold on it. But it 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 took the library this long to finally get it in, and I I actually just got the book today, and I read it earlier. Dang. So, yeah. It was oh, just, so you read it in just one sitting? Yeah, I read it in one sitting. It was it just gripped me from the beginning, man. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah. One more, right. one more recommendation I have. It, this is a, an image series, Godland, by Joe Casey and Tom Scioli. I, I, I would choose that as a recommendation because it's a Kirby pastiche, a very modern Kirby pastiche. So if, if you dig the Kirby vibes from Eternals, definitely check out Godland. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. All right. So... If you guys have any questions or if you want to just hit us up uh, with any comments, you can uh, hit us up on our Instagram, Between the Gutters, or you can email us at Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com. You know, let us know what's up. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, if you have any questions about the Eternals, uh, feel free to ask. Or if you have any comments about the Eternals, we'd like to hear them. Otherwise, I guess we're good to sign off. Peace out. See ya.